Good morning, church. That was the best one yet. That was great. Better than second service, too. It's great. You guys are the most spiritual because, you know, you get up early to come to church, you know. People in second service, you know, not so much, but... In the opening paragraph of the book called Whatever Became of Sin, the author tells this story. On a sunny day in September 1972, a stern-faced, plainly-dressed man could be seen standing on still on a street corner in the busy Chicago Loop. As pedestrians hurried on their way to lunch or to business, he would solemnly lift his right arm, pointing to the person nearest him and say, Guilty! Then, without any change of expression, he'd resume his still stance for a few moments before repeating the gesture. Then again, at the inexorable raising of the arm, the pointing at the solemn pronouncing the one word, guilty. The effect of this strange accusatory pantomime on the passing strangers was extraordinary, almost eerie. They would stare at him, hesitate, look away, look at each other, and then at him again, and then hurriedly continue on their way. One man, turning to another, exclaimed, But how did he know? Carl Menninger was the author of that book, Whatever Became a Sin, published in 1973. He was also the founder of the Menninger Psychiatric Clinic in Kansas. He's very well-renowned in the 20th century as a psychiatrist. In his book, he projected the day would come when sin would no longer be an element of the human vernacular. He speculated that the explanation of sin and wrongdoing would be replaced by rationalizations excusing individual accountability. Manager predicted the term sin would be replaced with words like illness, disorder, dysfunction, syndrome, etc. The human condition would be excused as a product of biochemistry or of environment or experience or trauma. He projected that even crime would go unpunished as a criminal activity would be justified and minimized as a result of some medical abnormality or something else for which one could not be held responsible. To the best of my knowledge, he wasn't a Christian, but he does sound like a prophet. Well, the rationalization is different. It is this idea that we really do not sin that John deals with in our passage today. In addition to denying Jesus Christ, John's opponents, whom he called Antichrist, said once a person understood their teaching, they would understand that you really don't sin. Sin was something done in the body, they said, but that your spirit was pure. For example, if you committed adultery, it was your body that committed the sin, but you were still pure. Your spirit was still pure. Let's read the passage, 1 John two twenty-eight through 3.10. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, 
And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed's seed abides in him, and he not, cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for showing us who we are and who the world is. And thank you, Father, for imparting to us the ability to not sin and the ability, Father, to practice righteousness. May we see that in your word today and may you open our hearts to it and make us more like Jesus Christ. And it's his, in, in his name we pray. Amen. So John deals with three ideas in this passage. First, he talks about abiding, which he talked about before. And then he he launches into talking about who we are as the children of God. And then finally, he talks about practicing, and specifically practicing righteousness. So let's get into this. 1 John 2, 28 and 29. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So John's been talking about abiding. In the previous passage, he talked a lot about it. And he uses the word here as a command. And with the command, gives a motivation for abiding. The motivation is being confident when Christ returns and to not shrink at his coming. The confidence John is talking about is the confidence at our position in Christ when he comes. That is, we are certain we are his, as opposed to being disgraced, which is the meaning of the word shame, at his return. We would be disgraced if we were not Christ. The Antichrist will be disgraced. They will be shamed at his coming. Some see this and suggest that there may be some uncertainty about our position in Christ. And I want to encourage you that that's not the case. There are two reasons that it's not true. First, John has already shown us that our abiding in Christ gives certainty as we abide because he is already abiding in us. 1 John two twenty four and 25. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If you heard from the beginning, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made us, eternal life. Secondly, remember what, who's John, who John is writing about. He's actually writing against these opponents who he calls the Antichrist. And he writes to draw a contrast between these people and us in our position in Christ. He's comparing those opponents who claim they have no sin. It is they who will be shamed at Christ's appearing. And Jesus even talked about this. In Matthew seven twenty one through 23, 
Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, our certainty doesn't come from the things we do or the declarations we make. Our certainty comes from what Christ did and using John, John's words in what Christ has taught us as he abides in us. Christ has taught us about himself and he has taught us to abide in him and so we abide. And then John adds another level of certainty to our position in Christ. If we know God is righteous, and we do, we also know that practicing righteousness is a mark of a believer because God himself is righteous. God has fathered such people. That's the meaning of the phrase, we are born of him, or we are born of God. He has fathered us. And John uses this idea of being fathered by God several times in the book of 1 John. And in each of the passages, the one fathered by God is known by the behavior of the one fathered by God. For example, 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let's let, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God, or fathered by God. And he knows God. So John introduces the practice of righteousness as being a hallmark of a believer. And so we have two hallmarks. First is abiding in him. That is, we do the things that further our abiding in him, and we do that because he abides in us. Put another way, we abide in him because he abides in us. And secondly, likewise, because he is righteous, we practice righteousness. And while we're certain and secure in the Lord, we are still called to continue abiding and to continue to being righteous. And as we'll see later in this passage, John makes more of this idea of practicing righteousness. And it's not only a hallmark of the believer, but is a measure of our opponents. And then John launches into, well, John Stott called it an outburst of wonder. 1 John 3, 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be, what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we will see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. John intends to talk about righteousness, but he stops and reflects on this idea that we've been fathered by God and launches into this, as I said, this outburst of wonder at who we are as God's children. John prompts us to consider with him the love of the Father has given to us, that we are God's children. The Greek for given is to know me. It's a common enough Greek word, and it means to grant a request. But it's often used as here to describe not just what God gives, but how he gives. James 1.5, for example, says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. When God gives, he gives generously. When God gives his love, he doesn't hold back. When he gives us his grace, he gives it in abundance. And so here in 1 John, the love, of God gives, the love God gives to make us his children is overabundant. The 1994 NIV translation of this of this passage rendered it this way. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called 
children of God, and that is what we are. The word lavished is appropriate here. It evokes the idea that the love God gave us to make his children, make us his children, is tremendous. As John entices us to consider God's love in making us his children, John exclaims that we are indeed his children. And he said something similar in the gospel, the gospel of John, John 1, 10 through 13. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of the blood, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This lavished love has two practical aspects. First, our being children of God is the reason we are estranged from the world, and we are estranged from the world as much as sometimes we would like not to be. The world doesn't know us. The world cannot know us because they don't know Christ. And remember that John is drawing the differences between the children of God and their opponents. And this is one of the differences. They don't know us. They are not like us. That is why they consider us weird or inferior or other things. We are part, we are of a different parentage than they. The second practical point of being God's children is in verse 2. We are God's kids now, but when Christ comes, there will be an an even greater difference. While John can't describe exactly what we will be like, he knows that we will be like Christ because we will see him. That's the goal of God for our lives, Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Think about that for a moment. It is an absolute certainty that as a believer in Christ, you are predestined to be conformed to Christ's image. You are predestined to be like him. That's God's goal. And John saw that. Now, like John, we can't know exactly what that will be like. But like John, we know that we will be like Jesus Christ. And John says the believer hopes in this. The benefit of this hope is that We are purified. We are purified by the hope of Christ's return. And like abiding and like practicing righteousness, the idea of being purified here is an active verb. We are called to continue to purify ourselves. God abides in us, and so we continue to abide. God has made us righteous, and so we continue to act righteously. God has purified us, so we continue to purify ourselves as we live for Christ. And then John gets back to his intention here. It's all about practicing. 1 John 3, 4 through 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. 
By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So after basking in what it means to be the children of God, John returns to his topic. John seeks to apply another diagnostic. Caleb has noted previously that John applies several diagnostics as a tool to evaluate ourselves, and in this passage also to evaluate our opponents. This time the diagnostic is the practice of righteousness, which helps us to see who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Now I want to take a moment to talk about the language that's used in this passage. Depending on the version you read, some of the language in this passage may appear to suggest that a believer can get to a place of sinlessness. And I'll be honest with you here, when I was a young believer and I came across this passage, that's exactly what I thought it meant. That we as believers could get to the point where we don't sin anymore. It's ironic, because that's exactly what John's opponents were saying. That you don't sin. One version, the NASB, in verse 6 says, No one who abides in him sins. Okay? Many versions, including the ESV, say in verse 9, for example, that the one who abides in God cannot keep on sinning. And some say that this teaches a Christian can lead a sinless life. Now, it's true that a believer grows in Christ. As a believer grows in Christ, he or she will sin less and less. That's the process of sanctification that God applies to our life. But we still live in a body where there's conflict between the flesh in us and the Holy Spirit in us. And we still sin from time to time. We all know that's our experience. But this is why John was clear in the earlier chapters that when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That was in chapter 2, verse 1. And in chapter 1, verse 9, he says, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. So what's going on here? In verse 6 and verse 9, John says believers cannot keep on sinning. The Greek construction, if we were able to look at it closely, leads us to see that sin here is not an individual sin, or not individual sins, but rather the settled habit of sinning, or rather the settled habit of not sinning. A way to think about it is to say that a believer is not able to sin habitually. Even if there is a sin here or there, the believer does not live in the character of, or in the prevailing habit of, or in the persistence of sin. The ESV version, I think, does a good job emphasizing the practice of sin, or really the practice of righteousness. For example, in verse 4, and it's also in verses 7, 8, and 9, the phrase is, everyone who makes a practice of sinning, or a practice of righteousness. And that's how we can think about it. So John wants us to understand who the children of the devil are. In 1 John 3, 4, he says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, we know that sin is wrongdoing. We know that sin is missing the mark. John here adds lawlessness to the description. Lawlessness is a total disregard for the law. One who practices lawlessness does not sin by mistake. But sins out of disdain for the law, the sin violates. Thus, Paul's description in 1 Thessalonians about the Antichrist, he calls him there the man of lawlessness. It's the person who says, I don't care, in the face of the law, while breaking the law. It's the person who says, I don't care what God thinks, 
This applies to all who do not believe in Jesus Christ. It applies to all of us before we were believers in Jesus Christ. Our natural disposition is is opposition to God. Our natural disposition is to be enemies of God. Before Christ, we were sinners by nature, and we sinned. Ephesians 2, 1 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom all we all once lived in the passage of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Secondly, in John, 1 John 3, 6, John says, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Despite what the non-believer says, like the Antichrist, who declared that they don't sin, they don't know Christ. And the evidence is their persistence of sin. And then in 1 John 3.8, John says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The practice of of sin in a person's life is the mark of the parentage of that person. Jesus talked about this. In John 8.44, speaking to the Pharisees, he said, You are the father, your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Again, it's not what a person says, it's what they do that marks who they are. Unless and until Christ plucks a person out of the devil's hand, that person cannot but practice sin. That is, they make a habit of sin. Before believing in Christ, all of us are children of the devil. We are all sons of disobedience. We are all subject to God's wrath. But when one believes in Christ, he or she is given the right to be the children of God. At salvation, we are taken out of the natural, our natural family and placed into the family of God, transferred from one kingdom to the other kingdom. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So those are the children of the devil. What about the children of God? 1 John 3, 6. Some of these verses, of course, overlap. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning, sinning has either seen him or known him. This is one side of the coin. This is the mark of a believer. The habitual practice of sin does not continue in the believer. Now, before I came to believe in Christ, and if you had known me, you probably would have described me something like uh, as a drunken sailor. My apologies, apologies to all the drunken sailors out there for making them look bad. I had a lot of sin in my life, but if you talked to my friends, they would have told you that I was a master at the use of language. Foul language. If it was a curse word, I knew it, and I said it, and I said it a lot. I became a believer just before I turned 19 years old, and I, and I remember this so clearly. Three days after I saved, I was in a pizza hut. I was ordering pizza, and I noticed that I hasn't, hadn't used a single curse word the entire day. And the next day, one of my friends asked me, why wasn't I cursing anymore? 
Now, I was quite blessed that God cleaned up my horrible language within days of my believing in Christ. And I share this not to impress you or to wow you with a miracle, though it was a miracle. But I share this to encourage you that God does work in his children to remove sin. Sometimes the removal is quick, and sometimes it takes longer. There are a lot of sins in my life that took a lot longer to remove. But God did that, and he did remove them. And there's more sin in my life that God needs to work on in me. I said earlier that uh, as we grow, we sin less and less, and that's certainly true. But um, if if your experience is anything like mine, as I grow, I also am made aware of sins that I hadn't been made aware of before. So there's always work for God to do. But God does remove the habitual sinning, and that is a mark of the child of God. 1 John 3, 7. Little children, <clears throat> little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. And this is the other side of the corn, coin that marks the believer. The child of God practices righteousness. And it is here that John expresses a concern about believers being deceived. For John, the deception was that the material body could do sinful things. But the spirit was righteous and could not sin. That's what he was concerned about. His children, John's people, would be deceived by. And this deception continues today, but the deception today is simply it's okay to sin, which is probably the next logical step from what Carl Menninger said. First, sin has been labeled something else. Trauma, emotional concerns, how a person was raised... And now sin is really not labeled at all. We are free to do what we want, says the deceiver. There really is no sin. The description that sin, in quotes, must be okay if it's something you want. It is not adultery if there's love. Thank God's love. There are many variations on this theme, but it comes down to a minimization of sin. So that it is not so bad, or it is not really sin at all. And the rationalization that it's really okay. God doesn't mind. God understands. If you think there's a God at all. John warns us not to be deceived by that teaching. And then in 1 John 3, 9, John says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. He has been fathered by God. Person fathered by God in whom God's seed cannot make a practice of sinning. The idea of seed emphasizes who we are as God's children. We are fathered by him. We are his children, and being his children, we are in his family. That Christ abides in us gives us the ability not to make a practice of sin. And as a child of the devil, we can't help but sin. But as a child of God, we are bent toward practicing righteousness. Now, we can be tempted to sin. But in the temptation, by relying on God's power, we can turn away from that sin. We are fathered by God. We are his family, and we are his children. We don't have to sin, but rather, we practice righteousness. John talks about appearing in this passage. And in that, he shows us why believers do not practice sin, but rather practice righteousness. It's because of Jesus Christ. 1 John 3, 5. 
You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And then in 1 John 3, 8, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Christ took away our sin at his appearing, his first appearing. That is, when he came to die and, and was risen and was risen again. At that appearing, at his first coming, as we sometimes call it, Christ destroyed the works of the devil. Jesus Christ, by his death on the cross and by his resurrection, made the devil powerless to make God's children sin. Let me say that again. The devil is powerless to make God's children sin. That's not to say that we don't fail. And we do sin from time to time. We are flesh, and sometimes the flesh prevails. But Christ ripped the power of sin out of us. He ripped the power of the devil to cause us to sin. We are God's children. We are adopted permanently into God's family. Christ took the power of sin out of our lives. It is irrational, it is illogical, and it is incongruous that we should practice sin. On the other hand, it is rational and it is logical and is compatible with the work of Christ and our family status in him that we should practice righteousness. John Stott said this, If then the whole purpose of Christ's first appearing was to remove sins and to undo the works of the devil, Christians must not compromise with either sin or the devil, or they will find themselves fighting against Christ. It is the first step to holiness, I'm sorry, if the first step to holiness is to recognize the sinfulness of sin, both in its essence as lawlessness and in in its diabolical origin. The second step is to see its absolute incompatibility with Christ in his sinless person and saving work. The more clearly we grasp these facts, the more incongruous will sin appear and the more determined we shall be to be rid of it. And then John lays out the diagnostic for us in 1 John 3.10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John concludes this by noting that the inability to practice sin becomes a mark of the believer. He said positively is the practice of righteousness that marks the believer. And John says it is evident. Evident here is the Greek word phaneros. And the word means to make known or to reveal. The word is used six times in this passage. All five of the other times it refers to the appearing of Christ, twice referring to his first coming in verses 5 and 8, when he took away sins and when he destroyed the works of the devil, and three times referring to his second coming, once in chapter 2, verse 28, and twice in chapter 3, verse 2. As Christ was made evident or revealed at his appearing, it is evident or it is revealed who the children of God are. This is the diagnostic. This is how we can measure who is a child of the devil and allows us to measure ourselves as children of God. In this diagnostic, John applies one more measure. It is the measure of whether one loves his fellow believer. John will deal with that in the next passage. A couple of things to consider. First thing is to see and to look And to behold, John says, to see what kind of love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be children of God, God, called God's children, and that is who we are. 
And I mean it. I mean, look. Take some time to read the New Testament about, about what it means to be God's children. There are three passages that come to my mind right away. Ephesians chapter 1, where in part it says, We are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing, having been chosen in him before the foundation of the world. We are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. First Peter, it says that uh, we have been given everything pertaining to life and godliness. That's one of the benefits of being a child of God. In Romans chapter 8, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And then later in that same chapter, Paul says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We've been set free from sin. We've been set free from death. We will die, but we will live forever with Jesus Christ. And nothing, not a single thing, will separate us from God's love for us. And then a passage in Galatians 4, 3 through 7. Paul says, In the same way we also, who when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of, was, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as, adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And son there means sons and daughters. So take a look at what the New Testament says about you being a child of God. And then the second thing I'd like you to consider I've been trying to find a way to work this kind of stuff in for a long time. Um, Captain Jean-Luc Picard from Star Trek, Star Trek The Next Generation. On occasion, when there's trouble with the engines or systems on the ship, he would order his chief engineer, Jordy LaForge, to perform a level five diagnostic on the ship's systems. I encourage you to perform a level five diagnostic on your systems with the tool that John gives us in this passage. A child of God does not make a practice of sin, but rather makes a practice of righteousness. Apply that diagnostic to yourself. Then ask God to give you the power to practice righteousness in your life. The good news is that he will, and that you will, because, as John said, whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. You have been fathered by God, and because of Christ, you are already righteous. So practice righteousness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the, uh, this, this next diagnose, diagnostic that John gives us. And God, we do praise you. We are your children. It is amazing to consider that. It's amazing to consider the depth of love that you had for us in order to make us your children. The depth of love that you had for us in order to rip us out of the devil's hands and to put us into your family to make it in such a way, Lord, that we don't have to sin. 
And we do from time to time, and we ask your forgiveness when we do. But, Father, you give us the power not to sin. And you give us the power to practice righteousness. And it's because you're righteous that we can do that. Thank you, Lord, for that. May we uh, go out of here today practicing righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.